This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled The End of Struggle, recorded March 20, 2005, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, as I said, we're going to have a special guest this morning, Todd Corbett. And the reason Todd is going to speak this morning is last fall on our fall retreat, which we called Listening to the Stones, not the Rolling Stones, you know. <laughs> it's a line taken from Meister Eckhart who said, the Stones speak of God just as much as my mouth speaks of God. And Todd heard the Stones as a way of saying that he had an awakening. And we've been sort of sitting on it, letting it incubate for a while here, and then he was asked a question. Somebody dropped a question in the question box anonymously, asking Todd directly a question. And in our tradition here, such as we have a tradition anyway, uh, you become a teacher when people ask you to teach. You don't just decide, I'm going to be a teacher. But if people ask you to teach, this is a test of his, uh, of his awakening, by the way. If he refused, you can tell he doesn't have any compassion, and so he's no good anyway. <laughs> so he did give us a little uh, talk to our practitioners group, but this is his first big public teaching he's going to give this Sunday. So, Todd, why don't you come up here? Now, we'll, we'll give him applause afterwards. So let's suspend our judgment. I, people always do that. They applaud. The, you don't know if they're any good or not. What are you applauding for? <laughs> well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's interesting. Um, Joel asked me to bring out some books that uh, were special. Joel always does this every Sunday morning, and so I picked three books which were pretty impactful for me on the path. And I'm going to mention them to you. The most recent one was this book called Start Where You Are. It's a book by Pima Children. A lot of you are familiar with it. Probably many of you have read it more than once. It's a powerful book, um, and really the title says it all. Start where you are. Don't pretend you're somewhere you're not. Start right where you are, and take take a peek at what's there. And when you see what's there, really see what's there, you are free from it. So, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on, on these books, but uh, this is a dynamite book. <laughs> Another book um, called The Spectrum of Ecstasy. This book. In a sense, you know, I can look back and, and I really feel like this book saved my life. It's, it's dealing with emotions, and I had a lot of emotions on my path. A lot of really deep and dark emotions. Mm-hmm. And this book, I, it's very light. This guy is, he's, he's a comedian. <laughs> he's very funny, but he's also dead serious. And the stuff that he's presenting is so artfully presented. And essentially, it and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but it takes the emotions 
which are for a lot of uh, spiritual practitioners, emotions, they trip us up because we can have a wonderful um, meditative experience and all of a sudden we'll be in an emotion which horrifies us. We're really depressed. We don't even know how to get on our cushion anymore. And so this gives some insights into that process. And probably more than anything, it was the encouragement to know that emotions are like anything else on the path. Just like thoughts, sounds, images, no different. So, this is a powerful book. <laughs> and then there's this one. This is a book by uh, <laughs> Joel. And uh, this book was very helpful to me when I first started coming to the center. Um, I'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit. I wanted to say a couple things about what brought me to the center initially. It was back around 1991, 92, somewhere in there. And three years previously, I'd had a son that was killed in an automobile accident. He was 18 years old. It was the farthest thing from my mind that he could die. We had two other children, and they were fine, but one day he was gone. And it totally crushed me. It totally, I didn't know what to do. And it changed everything. What my life was before that, I don't even remember. It had some meanings that I can't even find now. I thought I was a person living in a world separate from me. And this was my son. And when he was killed, there was a hole left in my life. <laughs> you know, deaths happen every day. As a matter of fact, I'm an intensive care nurse. I've been a nurse for a long time. <laughs> and I've been dealing with death and dying long before my son died. I'd been dealing with uh, traumatic deaths in the hospital, working in intensive care, working in the emergency room. And when my son died, though, it's like, I had never dealt with death before. It opened up something which I didn't know existed. And suddenly I was forced to re-examine everything. And so I, I began searching, and before long, I'd been married for 19 years. Um, my wife and I basically started, we grieved differently. We changed a lot during the following three years after his death, and then we split up. And that created another hole in my life. And I really began to get a sense that my life was coming apart. I didn't feel that security that I'd had before <laughs> was gone. And the deaths showed me something about everything else in my life. There was a certain um, tenuousness about everything and about myself. You know, we're forced to look at our own mortality, but we're also forced to look at the mortality of those we love. And then we start looking at the rest of our life and we start seeing the transience of everything. Death is a powerful vehicle. I can tell you from personal experience, a powerful vehicle for awakening, for seeing the truth, for knowing the truth. So after... Uh, after this period of my wife and I splitting up, I went 
you know, I was left at the old house, you know, and memories everywhere, big empty house. The kids had all left. It was just me and the old dog. And the old dog was just about gone. All gray and kind of hobbled around. And then there was the cat, and she was also really old. And they both died within the next couple of years. So it was just a very dark period. So I came looking for something. I I began looking for meditation retreats and um, meditation groups. And I found the center. And I first started coming to the center, and I would kind of come in. It was back when it was on Fillmore Street. I would come in on Sundays after the talk, and I'd see Joel sitting in there on his couch, and I'd kind of look at him. And then I'd go in, and I'd use the library, and I'd kind of was thinking, this looks kind of funny. (laughs) But after a couple of months, um, I was getting tapes and... You know, stuff I'd been reading, some stuff about Buddhism. And Jennifer, the librarian, she offered uh, one of Joel's tapes because I was looking for a particular topic, and she offered a tape. And I sort of said, okay, but I don't know if I'll listen to it or not. But I did listen to it, and when I listened to it, it was like I was just awestruck because it answered all of my questions that I had at that time about Buddhism, just across the board. All these things about form and emptiness, it was like, oh. And it was this guy, you know, it's just this guy. So I started coming to the talks, and I kept coming. That's been a while ago. (laughs) Been on many, many retreats here at the center. I don't know, 25 plus, long ago lost count. But... The process of opening for me was uh, complicated by the fact that uh, there were deaths every couple of years through my path. It was after my wife and I split up, I found a a girlfriend at the center, Bonnie, and she was an OBGYN nurse at Mackenzie Willamette Hospital, and we just really got along well and spent a lot of time together and I was getting ready to move in with her. And suddenly she came home from work one day with belly pain. And it was cancer. She'd had a a lumpectomy 10 years previous, and it was cancer. And it was back. And it was in her liver. And she was given a diagnosis of metastatic liver cancer. And... They said that probably she had six months to live, so we decided we were going to live the six months fully. Well, she only lived three weeks. But during that time, it was a powerful opening for me. And once she had gotten through the initial realization that she was going to die, and she had been a practitioner for a while in Joel's practitioner's group, she had a few days of tears, but then... She got it. It's done. And she just turned around. And then it was, I don't have to worry about anything. I mean, it's like she suddenly got that, I'm going to die. Why didn't I know this before? And that was her question, you see. And that is the question for everyone here. We're all on our deathbed now. It's not sometime down the road. 
It's right now. And when we know we're on our deathbed, everything's different. It's like, what time do we have to be fiddling around pretending? So, um, on Bonnie's deathbed, Joel and myself and several other family people kind of gather around. And Bonnie was lying there dying and taking her last breaths. And she was getting uh, Dharmic teachings from Joel. And it was perfect. She would begin to nod away and she would start struggling. And she'd go, no, no, no. And Joel would go, what? She goes, I don't know, I don't know. And he goes, well, that's just don't know mind. Don't be afraid of don't know mind. And then suddenly she started to smile. She was very familiar with these practices and these concepts, so it was like a laser right to the source. And she just suddenly stopped breathing, and she just, it was like she was had a little smile. And it was very sweet. And it was a powerful teaching for me. And anybody else who was in the room had to have benefited from that one. So, after reading this book, I was even more determined to stick with Joel. So, not that Joel is anybody, mind you. (laughs) So, the whole thing about the spiritual path is... What is this thing that we do that keeps us sleeping? There's this thing that we do, we do it constantly. And we don't know we're doing it, but we're doing it. And we're doing it all the time. Do you feel it right now? <laughs> it's this little thing of leaning out of this moment. This little thing which we could call struggle. Moving towards something so that we can feel better about our life, so that we can have better experiences better spiritual experiences for this group, but for a lot of people in the world, you know, a good beer or a good uh, party, Um, many, many ways that it can manifest. And as you come in closer, you can notice that in every moment there's this little, little niggling movement out of this moment. So we can call this struggle. And it's a funny thing, struggle, because it's suffering. It's how we suffer. We want something. We want to make things different. And that's our suffering. That sounds ridiculous, but that's it. And so even if we recognize we're struggling, then we might try to stop struggling. Of course, we're struggling. So, struggling is a funny thing. We don't like it. When we're struggling, we're 
wanting to get to the end of the struggle. We want to get to the end of it. But when we get to the end of it, and there's no struggling, we'll have this moment of a little equipoise, maybe. And then the mind comes in and goes, well, what do we do now? And we start struggling again. So it's a funny thing. We have a love-hate relationship with struggle. We're doing it constantly. And struggle, if we look closely, we begin to notice that really, that's what we are. That's our identity. The sense of me is struggle. And whenever you have a moment when you're not struggling, what's missing is you. You're missing from the struggle from this moment of no struggle you're missing. So it's kind of an interesting paradox on the spiritual path because we meditate, because we want to feel better about things or we want to have a clearer mind. And yet we're just continuing to do what we've done before, and that is we're struggling. So there is something that has to be noticed about struggling. We need to first of all know that that's what we're doing, and then we need to know how we're doing it, and we need to be able to see it as it's happening. And really what it is is this. We put attention on the struggle, And as we do this, we begin to see clearly the movements of the struggle. And then what happens is it begins to relax. It just begins to relax. We're not not lost in it. We begin to see it. And it's a funny thing because when we see the struggle clearly in this moment... We're not there. And why aren't we there? Because when we see it clearly, there's no struggle. It's an amazing thing. It's like, why do we struggle? You can ask that question till you're blue in the face. You can never find an answer. You can only struggle with it. (laughs) And so what you come to is, oh, if I just pay attention, if I just pay attention then the struggling takes care of itself. It's gone. But of course, if you're trying to pay attention so that you can get out of the struggle, (laughs) then you've invented a new level of complexity in the realm of struggling. (laughs) And we can always do that. So we have to be very clear about this to allow ourselves to notice the mind states that are arising. Now, you know, a lot of uh, spiritual practitioners, a lot of teachers, talk about how we don't need to meditate. You don't need to do any practices at all. You can just basically hang out with things and you can wake up. And that may be true for some people. But that was not my experience. And I, believe me, I did a lot of that hanging out stuff. (laughs) But, you know, the struggling mind, until it is seen, 
it will struggle. And it needs to be seen not just once, it needs to be seen over and over and over again. That means you have to be willing to look. Now, if you don't see it, my experience is you continue to struggle. And the mind is a, is a bottomless pit of struggling, and it's moving off in that direction. It's just heading on out, and it's going to keep on going. It's going to go right around the planet. It's just going to, it's going to keep going. When you actually allow your attention to sink into your experience... You're not going out that way. You're sinking in to your experience. If it's a desire, for example, I need something. I need a what is hot fudge sundae. <laughs> I need a hot fudge sundae. And I really want it. And I'm going to suffer if I don't get it. Okay, now in that moment, this is a perfect opportunity. Rather than creating a bridge over here to the hot fudge sundae, you know, and that's what we do. We do it about everything. We create little bridges. We move away from what it is that we're experiencing. We move away. But what we want to do is, rather than move away towards the hot fudge sundae or the ideas about it, we just want to sink down into the need, the neediness itself. And when we feel what that is and we're present with it totally, we're not struggling. And when we're not struggling, I'm not there. And when I'm not there, everything is different for a moment. And then we have that, that, that moment of bliss, that moment of equipoise. We didn't do it. We just allowed it to stop doing it to us, basically. So that's struggle, and that's kind of the way we deal with struggle. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about my particular struggle. Now, of course, there are millions of struggles that we are engaged in, but if we look, we can find one particular thing that is driving us in a big way. And I know for myself, it was not clear for years what this was. As a matter of fact, I never really had a a clear mental sense of what it was. Because it really isn't something mental. It's sort of a it's sort of an underlying thing. But I can describe it. And uh, I think you can probably get a sense of what it is. Back in the early 80s, I was working in intensive care, taking care of a lot of patients that were dying. <clears throat> this is before my son died. And I heard a teaching by Stephen Levine, who was a, a teacher of death and dying, and he was a Buddhist, Theravadan Buddhist practitioner and teacher. <laughs> and it was a teaching that kind of stuck with me, and it's been with me ever since. And I've actually gone back and listened to the tape uh, over the years. I've, I've I just couldn't believe how precise this teaching was. I'm just going to give it to you. It was. <coughs> He was describing a teacher of his, Ajahn Chah, who was a Theravadan monk in the Forest Thai tradition, Buddhist tradition. And the teaching went like this. Ajahn Chah was, was uh, with a student 
The student had been doing sitting meditation for some time and had come to him in tears because he had realized something about life. He realized that life is transient, passing. And he comes to Ajahn Chah and he says, how can you be happy in a world where everything is dying, everything is changing, everything is passing away? How can you be happy here? And Ajahn Chah was drinking from a crystal goblet some water and he held the goblet up and he said you see this glass I love this glass it was given to me by a dear friend I've had this glass for a long time but I know that this glass is already broken and because I know that this glass is already broken I love this glass And then he said, when this glass falls to the floor and goes, I'll know, that's fine, it's great, of course. But I love this glass, I was really with this glass. And then Stephen Levine was telling this tale. And he turned to the audience and he said, So let's look at it this way. It's you, not the glass. You are already broken. You are already dead. And your loved ones at home, they're already dead. Already dead. Now what room is there for posturing? What room is there for pretense? So when you're with your loved ones. You're with your loved ones. So this was the teaching, and this had a catalytic function for me because I took this on in my life, and I went to work, and I tried to apply this, practice this. And I seemed to be doing it okay, but then my son was killed in the automobile accident. And what happened was I was totally full of regret that I hadn't been with him fully. I had this sense that I somehow, no matter how much I was trying to be with him, I couldn't be with him fully. And that broke my heart as much as anything else. That was deeply troubling. And then there were, you know, more losses after that, after, you know, the the thing with the marriage falling apart, it was like, I remember I used to sit, and then I'd go and we'd talk, you know, Clavon and I, (laughs) we'd talk, and my wife, her name was Clavon, but it would just fall apart. No matter what I did, I, I could sit and be very still. And then we would talk, and it would just, you know. <laughs> and it was deeply saddening to me, because there, I could see there was no reason for this relationship to fall apart. But it's just what had to be. So eventually it 
it did fall apart. And and then later, then Bonnie, after she died, you know, it's funny because it was such a wonderful teaching, Bonnie, this whole process. But after the funeral, I was absolutely blown away once again. It was There was regret. I hadn't been with her completely. I came over to Joel's. And I told him that I was just beside myself. I couldn't, I was... I was depressed. It's a horrible thing. And so Joel sent Jennifer out to get Zorba the Greek, the movie. <laughs> and, um, and then he poured some Uzi? Uzo. 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 <laughs> the other Uzis are the Yeah. Uzo. So he poured some ouzo for me and proceeded to get me fairly plastered. And we watched Zorba the Greek, and Joel gave me teachings on detachment, and it was very helpful. A little alcohol sometimes is useful. It's not good for a habit, but it's wonderful for opening up a little bit sometimes when we're really stuck. And then... He put me up for the night, which was really sweet. I mean, it was... I, it really sweet, helped. I didn't want to get sued. <laughs> <laughs> that too, but for me, it was, very, it was just very, it was very warm and very sweet. And it was very helpful. These kinds of things are, are very helpful. You know, a little kindness, very nice. But that teaching kept coming back. And I remember sitting with that teaching a lot and still feeling just frustrated that I I couldn't do it. But I hadn't really got there yet. And it was only after the slide in 96 when there was this big mudslide, came through my property, killed my girlfriend at the time, another girlfriend, and three other dear friends. And I was just totally wiped out again but at that point I realized I can't do that this teaching I can't do it I don't know how I remember I just kind of came to this I don't know how and I let the thing go and it was after that and I've been doing all this mindfulness practice all this very precise mindfulness practice for all this time it was only after I realized I don't know how to do it that it just started to happen kind of spontaneously, being present. And what it had been was this recognition that as long as I hold an image of my loved one, any image, I miss them. If I think I know them, I'm missing them. Whatever I think they are is an illusion in my own mind. It doesn't matter what it is. I am obstructing their presence by my stories. And so after that, everything just sort of evened out for a while. And this is the whole thing about struggle. You see, this is really it. It was recognizing this struggle, seeing it through and through. At the point I realized, I can't do this. 
that's really the first time that I was truly honest with myself about this. Honesty really is the only way that we get to the truth. Truth is totally about honesty. So how do we struggle then all the time when there's something here that is precious and all we're doing is skirting it? Something here that's immaculate. It's our heart, our very heart. And if you just close your eyes for a moment and feel what you are, Feel yourself. Feel being. The very quality of knowing, of awareness. You see, there's even a struggle in that because when we think the word awareness, it's like we're stuck with it and we're trying to understand it and we're trying to feel it. Awareness, the word, is like all words and all names. It's a window. It's pointing to what's there through the window. So we sink into it and we just recognize that whatever it is in our mind, our thoughts, our images, they're just thoughts and images. But if we feel them, feel how they are, and then we go through that window And then we're kind of in free fall. And everything is flow. Everything is showing itself to be what it truly is. Not what we want it to be or what our minds tell us it is. So this world that we live in is just a window. It's a mystery. And like all mysteries, you know, it's like if you get a mystery novel and you read it, at the end of the novel, it's not a mystery anymore, right? Well, we know the answer. We know the plot. It's not a mystery anymore. Well, the thing about life is it remains a mystery, whether we know the plot or not. Because if we know the plot, we're missing the truth. So, the thing that's funny about the the true mystery that we are is that we're it. We are the mystery. And when we look out across the room, that's just our mind. The movement of the mind that says, I'm looking across the room, is all happening within you. And the world that we see outside, like when we look around the room, all these people, all these people are happening in you. They're not happening outside of you. They're in you. They are you. There's no separation anywhere. There's one sphere of being, one wide open, spacious sphere of being. But you see, if we call it that, and we walk away with that, then that's what we got. And that's not it. 
It's when we look through that window and we see that we don't know what anything is. You know what that is? We call that a hand. It's not a hand. <laughs> now, of course, for for all intents and purposes in the world of form, you know, going to work and stuff, you don't want to be a total idiot, you know. You don't know anything about the world of relativities. You need to in order to function, of course. And and that's that's kind of the the blessing is that it's all perfect in this way, you know? It's like it's all creativity and it's manifesting perfectly. A lot of what we don't see is that it's all happening by itself. It's all just happening. You know, when we scratch, you can kind of see it, actually. It's happening. But even when we mindfully pay attention to our scratching, I'm going to raise my hand. It's happening by itself. You know, where did the thought come from to raise my hand? It's amazing. The thing about this world is we can keep filling it up with stories forever and it doesn't matter because it's going to always be a mystery. And it's when we realize that that we wake up. And then we know what we are. What we are is what's here, what's actually here. And what's actually here we have no name for. We can call it anything, but it's not it. We can call it awareness. We can call it God. But if we go through the window, we're there. And so, naked through the gate, that's the gate. So, that's really probably all I have to say. Any questions? <laughs> yes? Um, I don't know if this is too much to hit you without preparation, but I was hoping that you would say something about, share something about the stones. About the stones? You mean on the retreat, listening to the stones? Sure. Um, That's basically what I've just been speaking about. But the thing that's interesting about this subject is that it's amazing. It's just amazing. When you look and you see that this is not a hand, just as you look at a stone, it's not a stone. And and really, if you, you know, I don't have a stone. You have a stone, do you, Joel? <laughs> Gong will work. Ah, there you go. Gong. Okay, we'll pretend like this is a stone. Just, there we go. So if you, if you look at the stone, or anything, really, and you listen to it, you have to listen to it in its language. It's language. It's speaking the language of the stone, which is not English or Spanish or some thought language. It's another language. And so in order to hear this language, we have to actually become very simple. And we have to just 
let go of our struggle to hear the stone, see our struggle, observe the struggle to hear it, and then you begin to see what's happening. There is this communion going on constantly, and it goes on all the time. And it isn't just in the stone, but you start noticing it around the stones. You notice it everywhere. There's only one thing here, and it's flowing. And when you listen to the stones, you're listening to that which is. You're listening to the truth. You know, when you look at a sound on the retreat, it's wonderful. You know, you, you sit there and everybody has their old stone and they put it out in front and you look at the stone. And after you look at it for a while, you begin to forget yourself because your attention isn't on me. And so the sense of struggle starts to fall away fairly soon, but then, you know, we want to get something out of the stone, so then we start struggling again. And then we recognize struggle and we're back back into it, back into it. And eventually what is noticed is that the stone takes on different shapes. You keep looking at the stone, the hue changes. The little bump on the side starts moving. Or just the whole way it looks, suddenly you notice it looks just totally different to you. You begin to notice that when you look at one part of the stone, you feel completely different than when you look at another part of the stone. And then as you relax more, you begin to realize this is one thing happening. It's not me looking at the stone, it's one movement, one thing. And then you begin to, you know, when you get up from your little meditation with your stone and you look over at other people in the room, you see this unity. And it's seamless. It's totally seamless. Everything, every movement that is made is a movement of the totality. And so then suddenly thought takes on a different meaning. Thoughts are just happening. Everything is just flowing. It's not me, you know, it's not my flowing. And the whole idea of me seems almost irrelevant. Actually, it does seem irrelevant. Totally irrelevant, especially on a retreat. Because there's nothing really to support the sense of me on a retreat, or very little, unless you conjure it up in your own mind. So I don't know, does that, does that help? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but um, one of the practices that we do here that we've learned at the center and happens a lot on our retreats is called choiceless awareness. And I was speaking with some friends last night about this practice, and I wonder if you this is a kind of uh, put this like an essay question if you would compare and contrast (laughs) (laughs) choiceless awareness your understanding of it with the awareness that's expressing itself through you right now choiceless awareness is a perfect metaphor for the truth the only reason that it's not 
a total awakening when you do that is there's a sense of contrivance. There's always a sense of contrivance when we do that. So on this retreat, what I noticed towards the end of the retreat, it became much clearer was when I went into the meditation hall and Joel was giving instructions, there was awareness of the instructions. It wasn't about the content anymore at all. It was just about phenomena arising. So there were instructions being given. I could hear them, you know, I could hear the instructions, but they're, they're small. The, the, the content is small um, in relation to the totality of what is, which is this awareness. When we're not, when we're not stuck in our ideas about it, this flow, you know, you hear people talk about stillness, you know, the stillness. Well, the stillness is really the birthing and deathing in each moment. And it's that equipoise right at the point where the two meet. It's always still. It's always there. And then there's the phenomena, and it's dropping away. So, I guess to say, um, if you... If you do choiceless awareness and you start noticing yourself doing choiceless awareness, be aware of all of the movements of I'm doing this, then that is very close to being awake. It's just that I don't really know what happened on this <coughs> I really don't know what happened. And so I could say nothing happened because nothing really did happen. I'm going to change the subject here and drop back off of that because it reminds me of a teaching that I got after my son was killed um, years ago. And it's funny, my wife and I had the same similar dream within a week of each other. And in my dream, I was out in the backyard calling him. He was lost. In the dream, I couldn't find him. I was really worried about him, and I was calling him. And he wasn't answering. And I, I was just, you know, really, really upset. And all of a sudden, I hear him. I'm yelling, Dax! And I hear him, what? And it's like, oh. And he starts coming down out of the woods. He was in the woods behind the house. And he comes down onto the yard. And I see him in, in the dream. He's just a little boy. He was, you know, a big guy when he was killed. But in the dream, he's like maybe 10. And he comes up to me. And he can see that I'm upset. And his words to me were, nothing happened. Nothing happened. That is a powerful teaching, although I wasn't really ready to hear it at the time. But... um now it's so clear. It's so true. Where is your life? Where is yesterday? Where's your childhood? Where is this morning? You can postulate it with the mind, but it's incomprehensible to the mind, the truth. Our mind thinks in 
bits and pieces. But when you relax in choiceless awareness, you let the fragmentation fall away. The imaginary distinctions become less real to us because we begin to see. We just see flow, flow, sound, an image, sensation, thought, just happening. And if we recognize the sense that we believe that we are doing it, if you just see how we're holding that thought, how we're holding that that um, emotional sense of me doing it, you see that as another one, and then you're just in this flow. And there's no place to stand. What is looking is the space of awareness. Everything that's coming up Everything that's arising in consciousness is arising in this space. And you are that space. It's a total field. It's a totally seamless field. I don't know if I answered your question. Pretty good. Okay. <laughs> yes. Do you consciously try to create your reality or do you just let life live through you now? Basically, that's a good question. It's just happening. And even when I consciously make a decision about something, it's just happening. You know, and so it's kind of like the a lot of the emotivity that gets stacked up around decision making is the sense of me. And when that kind of drops back when it's just not there, then decisions are still being made. And really, if you examine your life, you'll see that any decision you're making is just happening. I mean, I, I, I fought with that for years uh, when Joel would make statements like that. It's obvious, very obvious. And actually, it's not difficult to see. The reason that we can't seem to be able to see it a lot of times is because we have a strong sense that we're doing it. And so... and. We need more space in order to recognize what's happening. The way we get more space, I mean, it's different for all of us. Meditation for some people works really well. You get space, and then ending up doing choiceless awareness. Very helpful. And choiceless awareness, it's like after a while, you know, when you first start doing it, it's like, okay, I'm going to look, okay, and now I'm... But then you start noticing how you're doing that. And then you just sort of relax. Relax. And then when you relax, you notice that you're still noticing stuff. Only you're not doing it. It's just happening. And it's... I think when you see that for the first time, I, from my experience, whenever that would happen the first few times, I get goosebumps. Because it's like... Uh-oh. <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> I don't know if that answered your question. Good. Yes. I'm intrigued when you shared at the end, you talked in this way about at the end of your breath there's this space, and you said that a few times. Yes. Can you yes. say a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, in the 2000 retreat, Andrea, one of the other um, teachers from the center, and Joel were giving uh, 
a very precise teaching, and a lot of it had to do with breath work. And I had been focused into breath work for years anyway. So I spent a lot of time up in my room in Alder Hall watching the breath very, very precisely, you know, when I wasn't down meditating in the meditation hall. And at one point, I noticed, and I was being very, very meticulous with the breath, right at the end of the out-breath, I noticed a kind of a brightening. And it was not just a visual brightening, it was a kind of a total sensation of brightness. Exhilarating. And then the in-breath, and then we kind of go away. And then when I get to the end of the in-breath, there it would be again. And I began noticing this more and more. And after a while, it would just stay there. I would notice that the breath could move through the brightness. It would stay. And gradually, I came to see that the brightness really was just this awareness. It was an awareness without concept, without thought. And the other part of it was, it was what was looking. And in the space between breaths, when you are very, very precise with the breath itself, when it ends, attention is still there, and there is this space. And awareness is seeing this space, but at the same time, awareness is space. And I can't really explain why this happened, but it's sort of it's sort of recognizing what you are in that moment. But there was still, you know, it was sort of in and out. I mean, there was a sense of no self after that for periods, but then it would kind of dissipate. And I noticed that on the next retreat, I what I would do is I would just find that and regardless of the teachings that were being given in the retreat, you know, the practices to do, I would just go there, and I would stay in that space. And it was very powerful, very powerful. I wish I could be more precise about that. It's hard to explain it, actually. I'm starting to... You get a sense. That's really... And at the end of the in-breath, too, like you said. Yes. Yeah. So I think that really what's really important is to do it without expectation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you're wanting to find the brightness, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's really about just being very precise with the movements of the breath. You know, and one thing when you're doing breath practice, you start to realize there is no breath. You begin to see it's moment to moment vibration, shifting, changing. You can't even put a name on it. You see, and that's, that is the microcosm of the truth. When you take that to heart and you begin to notice that's what everything is. It's all that way. We have labels for things, but when you look around without your labels, you see what's here. So, yes? Uh, did you have a experience a sense of fear along with this sense of no self period of time years ago i did back in 2000 when that when that um when i was having that i would get goosebumps 
I'd feel kind of weird. As a matter of fact, since then we had a retreat in which there was this process of burning up phenomena, recognizing my own, um, you know, that just the way we are. I don't know how to explain it exactly, but just you know how I am, you know, in the dining hall, or how I feel about stuff. Um, Noticing that stuff and burning it up, seeing it through the eyes of awareness. It's like, oh my God, that's just, that's just nothing. It's nothing. And I got to one point on this particular retreat that I started having fear. And Clavon was at that retreat and she told me that I got all pasty and kind of pale and I came into the dining hall kind of looking sort of bug-eyed and kind of crazy looking. And um, and I did. I had a period where I had to stop doing it because it was, well, it stopped doing it by itself. I mean, I got to where I was feeling sick even. But then by the end of the retreat, I was sort of doing it again. So it was kind of a weird one. But yes, fear does come up from time to time. This last <laughs> retreat, there was no fear at all. And I think there was a kind of a... Um, a shocked feeling because it was so different. And I, I'll just mention this little thing that happened on the retreat. I, I, I got up out of uh, the meditation. I went to go to my room. I opened the door and I looked in the room and there was Abdullah. Well, actually, I didn't know who it was. I could just see a figure sitting on my bed. And I was just... I mean, that's never happened on a retreat. People don't go in other people's rooms, you know, on a retreat. So, anyway, so it was a shock. And in the moment I saw him, it was like, you know, it was like, what is this guy doing in my room? But even before I thought, had those thoughts, there was this, this shock, and the room brightened up, and he looked like this, I don't know, he had big eyes. And the feeling was walking into an Egyptian cave and seeing the mummy sitting up. <laughs> and, and it was just for a moment and then you know then I kind of reacted and then it's like he started talking to me and it was like hey, it's gibberish it's, it sounded like Chinese or something and then I realized oh it's Abdullah and I'm in his room <laughs> so then I closed the door but then I had to kind of peek back because I was just like amazed by what I had seen. It was just this... Anyway, so then I I came out, and then from that point on, there was this total shift. It was just very quiet. Very quiet. And I deviated from your question. <laughs> anyway, so that's probably, that's probably enough of that. Yeah, Fred. Joel has talked about enlightenment being retroactive. I just wondered if that's your experience. That's one of those words that retroactive. You mean when I look back at my life? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it's all I'm looking back at is thought. My life is a total fabrication. <laughs> Where is it? So yeah, I guess in a sense, yes, indeed. I mean. Yes. <laughs>
Yeah. I, I just like to share something. Um, I read it in a most recent issue of Shambhala magazine, and uh, was one of the Buddhist teachers. I don't remember which one. There's several of them commenting, and it really impressed me that they said in the Buddhist tradition the teachers find that we do things kind of in reverse order here that here we get very involved with sitting on the cushion very um, engaged in meditation practice and trying to reach some level of awakening and over there it's just the other way around they really work on the precepts in a life and that one should really cultivate the moral forces and the way the heart and the mind work together in day-to-day reality. And they're more relaxed about letting meditation and subsequent enlightenment kind of come of itself because they really arise out of our attentiveness to morality, because this is where we are. We are in these material bodies, and even if it's nothing, we experience it as such when we're here. Very true. Yes, and actually, at the Center for Sacred Sciences, precept work is a big part of it. And I must say, when I first started, uh, I was a little shocked by the precepts. The first precept, um, responsibility. Uh, to take responsibility for my life and not to blame others for my own unhappiness, nor make excuses for my own mistakes. And, you know, there are ten of them. There are ten uh, precepts. And I can say from my own experience that, yes, this is a powerful part of it, because it's only through confronting what it is that we think we are in circumstances like if we're you know telling little lies or whatever because we want to feel better about ourselves or taking things from work <laughs> little things like pens um, these precepts help us see what is the motivation behind this activity and it is that that helps us to see the truth and the other part of this is that I can see that in this culture, mostly, we start out the way we start out because that's where we are. You know, this book. <laughs> start where you are. And in this culture, we're very fixated on our minds. We're very fixated on material things. And in other cultures... There are a lot of other emphasis. And what we have to do is we have to start right where we are. And then we go from there. And I think with the center, the thing that's been useful about it is we have many facets of this thing. We have meditation practice. You know, we do sitting and walking meditation. Then we do precept work. And then we come into our little formal semi-formal classes, and discuss the precept work and the experiences that we have and kind of bring that out. So it's similar to what you're describing. And it is um, powerful for us to be able to see our attachments and what's motivating our sense of self.
I don't know if that helped. I'm starting to fade. I don't know about you guys. But I think we should bring the, the formal part uh, to a close here. Encore. 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 He'll be back. <laughs>